story goes that um, there are three men who uh, had just died recently and uh, were standing before God and they were trying to explain how or why uh, they were there. So the first guy says, well, God, basically what happened was this. I came home one day and I went up the stairs to my apartment and I went in the door and I smelled cigar smoke. I said, and I just came unglued. The thought of my wife cheating on me, the thought of somebody else being there with her, I just went crazy and I started ripping the apartment apart. I started throwing things around. It, it just was so frustrating to me. I didn't know how to handle it and I, my anger got the best of me. And I looked all over the place and I couldn't find anybody. But I knew that there was someone there I could smell the smoke. And I looked out the balcony and I didn't see anyone on the fire escape. And I looked down the next window and I saw the postman with a cigar in his mouth. And I came unglued. I reached, I grabbed the refrigerator, I dragged it to the window, and as I shoved it out the window, the last thing I remember was the sharp pain in my chest. And that's all I remember. So God said to the second man, he said, well, what about you? And the second guy said, well, you know what, sir? I delivered the mail, I went down the steps, I stood outside, I was looking at the rest of the mail in my bag, and I thought I'd take a break, and I lit up a cigar, and as I was about to go out the rest of my route, I heard this noise, I looked up, and that's the last thing I can remember. And he looked at the third guy and said, hey, well, what's your story? He goes, well, the last thing I remember, I was minding my own business, sitting in a refrigerator, smoking a cigar. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you know, and when I, and I heard that story, I thought, man, you know what, that is a great story to remind us of how easily we can deceive ourselves into believing something that we're doing is okay. You know what I mean? Oh, I don't know, just minding my own business, sitting there smoking a cigar in the refrigerator. I mean, we all do that, don't we? And, uh, and, and the point as we go through this is that what, what John is going to discuss in this particular section, if you've got your Bibles, turn to First John. But what he's discussing in this section is that there are many of us who are doing things and have justified it in our own mind that what we're doing is really not all that bad. And on top of it, we say things like, well, you know, there are a lot of other people who are doing it. So it can't be that bad. And in 1 John, John's going to discuss that problem and a lot more in this particular section. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll start um, in verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. said, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And no one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. One of the problems that we have in this passage, as well as in other passages of the Bible, is that we begin to uh, interpret it, or misinterpret it, based on whatever variables we read into it. One of the things that we've got to remember as you're going through a book study in this particular letter is that he continues to build upon certain themes. See, John didn't see the nebulous uh, area that we see, and that is that um, you can kind of have one foot in the world and then one foot in Christ. 
that you can be a believer sometimes and only in certain environments and not in, in other times. Um, that there's a, the way I like to put it basically is this. See, what, what John has seen is, and we'll go through it, but a list of them so far, he said that you know, basically there are believers and there are those who aren't. There are those who know Christ and there are those who don't. There are those who keep his commandments and there are those who don't. There are those who walk in the light and there are those who don't. And as you go through this, he said that there are those, if you're a believer, you'll live like Christ or you won't. And as you go through each one of these things, he he shows that there is a contrast of lifestyle that should be evident of those who profess to be believers. You know, a couple weeks ago, I I saw again another article in the paper, United Press, said that 87% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. It's an amazing statistic when you think about it. But the reality of it is that what a Christian is in our cultural setting is different than what a biblical definition of a Christian is. And under Christian, there are a lot of headings. Who are Christians? I believe in God, so I'm a Christian. I go to church, I'm a Christian. I'm an American, and 87% of people in America identify themselves as Christian, and I know I'm not a Muslim, and I know I'm not this, and I know I'm that, so I must be a Christian. And they go through and they break it all out. But what John was saying was there are those who are believers and those who are not. There are those who walk in light. There are those who walk in darkness. There are those who live like Christ and there are those who live like hell. And he goes through and says there are those who eagerly wait or anticipate the day that Jesus is coming back. And there are those who don't have a clue that he is and they don't wait for it and they don't know anything about it. So there are some contrasting differences. And so we're not to confuse ourselves into believing that I can be a Christian here in this setting. You know what he's saying, basically, practically speaking? He's saying, you know what, there's no such thing as a Christian on Sundays and Wednesday nights. You know what I mean? You, you, you hear what I'm saying? That there's no such thing as a Christian in Bible study or church, and then the rest of your life you live like anything you want to live like. So I make it real practical. I look at it this way. See, what he's saying to me, what God's saying to me is that, Chuck, you know what? See, you're just not a Christian at certain times. And then when you go to the job site, you can drink and tell jokes and dirty stories and swear and be like everybody else. See, you know, you, you can't do that. Either you live in the light or in obedience or you don't. And if you don't, you can't have a dual existence. Now, the good news is for those of us who are trying to live a dual existence and are, quote, Christians, you can't enjoy that very much. As you grow, you begin to get to the point of saying, you know what? I'm sick of this hypocrisy. I'm either one thing or I'm another. And I've got to, it's time like Joshua, it's time to decide this day whom I'm going to serve. Am I going to serve God? Or am I going to serve myself? And if I'm serving myself, then I'm lining up in the category of those who walk in darkness. Those who show no evidence of having any other way to live. And so as we go through this, we're going to see that the passage is clearly teaching. But the problem that we have is that if that's the case then why do some of us continue to sin? See what, see what he's saying? It, so far, what he said is this. If you're a believer, then you'll live like Christ. Okay? If you're a believer, you'll be obedient to what God commands. Right? If you're a believer, you'll eagerly wait for Jesus to come back. And if you believe he's coming back, we talked about it last time, that it will affect the way that you live your life. Right? Now, all those are great questions. Now, but the, the underlying question is this. If that is true, then why do we continue to sin? Right? Why do we continue to sin? And that's a very good question. If I say that I believe what I say I believe, then why do I continue to live opposite of what I say I believe? 
if I believe Jesus could come back any moment, then why doesn't it affect the way I live my life? Or why do I go on living it like I don't believe it by ignoring the possibility that it's true? If I say I love God and want to obey His commandments, then why is it that when I'm confronted with certain things that I choose to please myself instead of pleasing God? Why do I struggle with all this? And that's what he's dealing with in this particular passage. So better yet, what we need to ask ourselves is, and, and you know people that are like this, why do some of us who claim to be Christians and who are Christians continue to struggle with certain sin in their life? All right? This is going to be great because we all know people that you could stop and think about for a moment. And that would be, you know, why do, why do some of us continue to lie? I've got Christian friends that, you know, they, they lie all the time. They lie like a dog, as I like to say. And, and uh, as my friend from uh, Auburn, Alabama says, he lies like a dog. <laughs> but, but that's the truth. And, and you know people like that. I, I know people who are Christians that cheat any time they get a chance. They bid a job. They don't, they're, never gonna, they're never going to put in what they say they're going to put in. Man, they're going to cut every corner that they can. They cheat all the time. And they say, well, it's just the industry practice. That's the way it is. You have to do that to make it in, in, the, in the construction environment today. So you've got to cheat. I know people will say they'll cut a deal with you. They say they do certain things, and they're not gonna, they don't have any plans on doing it. And regretfully, some of them are those who claim to be Christians. And ironically, what he's saying is that there are those who are Christians who do those things. You know people like that? Oh, yeah, we all do. So now the question is, well, if I really believe what I say I believe, then why do I continue to struggle with certain sin in my life? And specifically, why do I harbor a specific sin? Some of us struggle with the same thing over and over and over and over and over. You get counseling, you deal with it, you do it again and over and over. Why? That's what he's going to talk about. Man, I'll tell you what, there's some good stuff in here if you find yourself in that category. And uh, as we go through it, we're going to talk about why do we continue to sin. But let me ask you a question. What is sin? This is great. You know what, I love going to studies and things like that where everyone assumes that everyone knows what you're talking about. And that's not the case. But no one's going to say it because it's like, you know, sin, like sin 101. Gee, I should know what sin is. You know, that's, uh, I'm not going to say that. You know, I'm not going to ask the question, but I'm going to assume I know what's going on just so I don't look real stupid. Well, let's just assume one thing is, is true of everyone in here, that we're all stupid. That's why you're here. And that's why I'm here, and that's why you keep coming back. So, anyway, let's assume that. Why do we continue to sin? Let's, uh, let's agree on a definition. What is sin? Sin is separation from God. Okay, separation from God. Even see, Al, I'm not that bright. I know you know what you're talking about. I don't have a clue. Because the way I look at it is, I haven't hung out with him for a while, and, and, and we haven't had lunch together. See, no, I, I don't, I don't want to make it real simple and stupid, but that's true. I mean, separation from God, to me, doesn't mean anything practical. I'm sorry, what were you saying? Now no one else is going to raise their hand. Well, if that one doesn't work, then what's going to work? <laughs> Way to shoot down the participation. Oh, I know what I'm supposed to say. I'm supposed to go, ooh, ooh, that was good, that was good. Like, you know, like typical home Bible studies. Very, oh, that was good, that was good. Oh, and that was good too, even though it was the opposite of what he just said, but that was good, that was good. Oh, we're all going to get somewhere today. I can feel it now. Anything that falls short of God's perfect standard of word, thought, and in word, thought, and deed. She got it written on her arm here. I don't know. She, it's all enough. Anything that. <laughs> Craig. I, hey, Frank, how are you? 
I did it my way. Okay, yeah, it's like, okay, there's, there's, there's God's way and there's my way, right? Yes, sir. What God hates. Okay, God hates sin, but that doesn't help me know what it is. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he hates something, but I don't know what that means. Anything that, that, that's different than God's moral standard. Um, oh, hi, how are you? Good, you know how it is. You want to pick on the people in the back because... Okay, did you hear that? Okay, let me repeat it. God gave us the law so that we could see what his standards are so we could measure our performance versus what he says is right or wrong. You got it? So, this is great because maybe this will now make some sense. So, if God says something is right and that's his standard and our performance doesn't measure the standard, then the difference between the two God calls sin says it's wrong, is what he's saying. See, now, does that make a little more sense for you? So, why do we continue to sin? Why do we, as God establishes sin? How many of you heard the definition um, that sin is falling, uh, is falling short of the mark? All right, you heard that? Now, have you ever stopped and think, what's the mark? No, no one ever asked that. Everyone just goes, oh, good definition, good definition. I'll jot it down. But it's like, what's the mark? Well, what we've got to understand is, is that there is a specific, if it's definite, there is a specific standard that God establishes and sin is falling short of that or not living up to it, a better way to put it. Right? Okay, now here's the way this works. How many of you ever played darts? How many of you, you know, well, and I'm sure it wasn't in a bar or anything, but... You know, but if you, you ever play darts, okay, <clears throat> like what are, what are the rules of darts? Okay, ours, I remember one was never run through the house with them, okay? <laughs> You'll lose your eye. And that's, so that's the first rule of darts. Anyway, but what are, what are the rules? You know, they get <clears throat> the, the circles, right? <clears throat> okay, the one who's close to the center, if you hit the center, you get the most points. And it goes, if you go a little further outside, 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 and if you start hitting the wall, then, then you do the re-wallpapering or whatever it takes. So that you, you're, you're on your own for that. But the rules are very simple. The center, you get the most points. Now, what if I was playing you darts, and you threw yours, and then I waited until I threw mine to decide what the rules would be? Okay, I threw them. Oh, one, one. Oh, I got a new one. If it doesn't hit the board, if it doesn't hit that little circle, any part of the circle, and it hits the wall... I win. <laughs> now, would that be fair? That wouldn't be fair, right? No. But see, and, and if you're going to take that dark game a little further, what God is saying is that God establishes the rules. And he gives us certain parameters that we're uh, allowed to live our lives that still please him. All right? And in some areas, he's given us greater parameters. And in other areas, they're as specific as the bullseye. So what he's saying is that this is his standard for living our lives. So, in order that he would not be unfair to us, he lets all of us know what the standards are up front so that we have a choice of whether we're going to play by his rules or not. So, as we throw the dart, or as we live our lives, if we're outside the circle, then he says, oh, that's sin, that's wrong, and I'll judge you for that. So, it's very, it's very fair, very upfront. So, as we're playing this game, we begin to realize that God has set up certain standards and says, okay, listen, here's the standard. You have to live a certain way. So now as we go through this, remember that because it has to do with, well, why do some of us continue to sin? 
He says, here's the standard. You're living outside the bullseye or outside even the chart. You're like the guy sitting in the refrigerator smoking a cigar saying, well, it's not that bad because I know other people that are sitting in the refrigerator smoking cigars, and so it can't really be that bad. What makes you think it's right? What makes you think it's wrong? You know? And it's that kind of attitude that we live in in this society. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong. There are no standards. Do whatever you want to do. And, but God says, no, wait, we've got a problem. There are standards, and there are rules, there are laws, and the point is very well taken. God has given us laws, which are his standards, to live our lives. Any violation of it, you get a ticket, so to speak. And if it was that easy, it would be a lot simpler, but it isn't. It gets more complicated. So now ask yourself the question, why do some of us continue to sin? Look what he says. Put this one out of the way and put this one there. He says, we, basically, everyone who sins, 1 John 3, 4, very first verse, everyone who sins breaks the law. And he says, in fact, sin is lawlessness. All right? There's a very simple working definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the same as driving down the freeway 90 miles an hour, breaking the speed limit. The deviation between the two oftentimes will determine what the penalty is as far as what you have to pay. And, and I saw, when we were back east, we were driving down the, uh, the parkways like, or the turnpike, whatever they call it. And they, they have posted there, if you go 65 miles an hour, you pay $96. If you go 70 miles an hour, you pay $120. You know, if you go 80 miles an hour, you pay $220 or whatever. I mean, they're posted right there. So every time you're driving, you're going, check in your wallet. <laughs> you, know, you know exactly what the penalty is going to be. And it's a clean way to go. And so sin is lawlessness. Sin is making the decision to drive 85 miles an hour in a 60 or 55 mile an hour zone. And so as we go through this, what John is saying is that, you know what, that is what sin is. And it refers to, listen to this very carefully, it refers to the lawlessness, which is rebellion. Rebellion is at the seat of every sin that you can commit before God. You follow this? Rebellion is at the seat of every sin that you commit before God. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness refers to the rebellion of our hearts. And that's why we sin because we deliberately decide that God's standard isn't how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live it, as Frank says, my way. You follow that? So basically, we continue to sin because we don't submit to God's authority in our lives. God establishes the rules, the laws, the standards, the principles, and he says, live according to these. And I say in my heart, I'm not going to do it. And I don't care what rule it is, and I don't care what law it is, whether it's cheating or lying or this or that, I don't care what it is, I'm going to do what I want to do. So the root of that problem is rebellion against the authority of God. I don't believe God's in authority over my life. You follow this? So he goes through it, and the point is in Romans 3.20 is that God gave us the law, and it says that therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. See, what God did is he gave us laws and standards to help us to realize that we're not perfect and we'll never be able to live up to them and that we need help to do it. And in Galatians, it says that, Jesus, that the law was a tutor or teacher that led us to Jesus Christ because we couldn't do it ourselves. So God gave us laws and said, you know what? My standard is perfection 
and you keep trying to live it, but you can't do it, and you keep on struggling, and you've got a problem, and you'll never be able to come into my presence in a place that he calls heaven because I, you have to be perfect to get there. You may be good, but you're not that good. And so all of a sudden we sit there and go, man, you know what? I can't do it. And so God used his standards or his laws to help us realize that we need help. And you know what? The other thing is, I want to get very, very clear here, is that God's standards are not based on our opinion of them. You follow this? This is critical that we understand this and just get it down and jot it down. God's standards do not follow whether we agree with them or not. God doesn't say, oh, you don't like this? Oh, I'll change it. He doesn't do that. His standards never change. And in fact, you know, one of the things, that, it's an ongoing thing in the, in the, in the register um, about everything is ongoing in the register. But this is particularly interesting to me. And it has to do with most churches now studying homosexual issues. Most churches now studying sexual uh, behavior issues. Most churches now studying, you know, whether they should ordain homosexuals into the ministry. You know, and you go on and on and on. And in this particular article, it says, Still the controversial nature of competing resolutions on homosexuality has triggered the hottest debate. Convention deputies also will discuss whether to create a wedding-like ceremony for gay couples. The current controversy ordaining homosexuals dates back to the 1979 convention when the church decided that it was, quote, not appropriate. Three years ago, the church's standing commission on human affairs took up the issue again and only recently recommended a change. The committee acknowledged that there's still much disagreement but recommended that the final decision, decision be left with each, uh, each bishop. This is the Episcopal Church. The recommendation is being strongly challenged by Bishop William Frey of Pennsylvania. Frey is pushing a resolution that would require all clergy to, quote, abstain from sexual relationships outside of marriage. The right Reverend John Crum... A retired Ohio bishop who now lives in Tustin said the, vir- the resolution is virtually unenforceable. It makes monogamy, not one's ability to minister, the single most important qualification for priesthood. Quote, I have ordained a person who wasn't sure if he was homosexual but thought he was. You'd think the guy would have helped him to understand whether or not he was. Um, who will vote at the convention. He said, I did it with the understanding he wasn't going to make a public spectacle of himself. Crumb. Crum, like other dioceses of Los Angeles bishops, hopes the decision to ordain homosexuals be left up to local bishops who are best in touch with their flocks. Do you understand what he's saying? Make your own rules on the local level because that's the people that you deal with and you're in best, you're best touch with your flock. Right? So the local people are going to determine what is right or wrong. The local people will determine what God's standards are and what they aren't. This lady goes on and she says, In recent months, the Diocese of uh, Los Angeles newspaper has been filled with page after page of emotional clergy and lay opinions on the issue. People are reading the Bible differently now. Some read it one way, others read it differently. It's like what? Some read it stand on their head, others read it turned upside down. I mean, what does that mean exactly? And, and so, you know, she goes on and basically says the same thing. You know, it's time that we, we update, we modernize, we, we look at Scripture a little differently than we have for the last 2,000, 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 years. Uh, let's look at it different today. All I've got to say is there's enough evidence in Scripture to indicate this. God is not going to change based on whether we agree with Him or not. His standards stay the same. Let's just get a good handle on that right now and let's just go by what the book says. Those are the laws. That's the program. Let's not change it. And because the scary thing to me is the majority of people rarely ever know what's best anyway. Isn't that the truth? 
It is a scary thought to think that we could sit around here and decide what's right or wrong. Because some of us could go ahead and push others into making decisions that could go along with the group. We know how that all works. We see it in business. We see it in politics. We see it all over the place. You know, there's a few people who can determine what everyone else is going to do and somehow rationalize it and say that we all agreed on it. Well, that's nonsense. And so what God's trying to say is, you know what? You know why we continue to sin? Because we simply don't submit to God's authority in our life. And it's very simple. If you want to know God's opinion on something, then pick up the Bible and read it. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't take a theologian or somebody to go to seminary to get all confused and mixed up on what he thought he read by what everyone's telling that it really isn't there. My kids can pick it up. Jesus loves me. Yes, he does. He can, they can read it. Jesus loves me. What do I got to do? Just believe in Jesus. They can read that. And they don't complicate it. It's simple. And Jesus said, unless you have childlike faith, you can't come to him anyway. I just turn it and read it. And what it says, that's what it says. It's as simple as that. And I don't need anybody helping me to try to determine whether I can continue to do what I want to do at the expense of what God's laws and standards are. You want to know what he says? Just pick up the book and read it. Now, the problem is, why don't we pick up the book and read it? Huh? Because we don't want to know what it says. But you know what? You know the good news on that? If you are in a position where you've come to know Christ, you've accepted him into your life, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God lives within you, and this is the way this works. This is so sweet. I love it. You all could tell me a hundred times that what I'm doing is right, but if the Bible says it's wrong, the Spirit of God lives within me and says, hey man, I don't care what all those people are saying. What you're doing is wrong, and you know it, and I know it, and we all know it, so stop it. Isn't that the truth? So I can't tell you to continue doing something that's wrong. I don't care if I stand up here. I don't care if I open a Bible. I don't care who you think I am or what I represent. I can't tell you to continue to do something wrong. If you're a child of God and the Spirit of God lives within you, if I'm telling you something that's contrary to the Bible, God's Spirit will tell you, don't listen to that bozo. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know in your heart what you're doing is wrong. So stop doing it. But we don't want to know that because we want to know it's okay to sit in a refrigerator and smoke a cigar because that's what we're doing. We don't want to be confronted with it. Why do you think, look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, turn back to it real quick. Psalm 1. Man, I'll tell you what, a lot of us just better wake up in this area because we're running into all kinds of problems because of it. If you want to know what sin is, just open your Bible. You don't have to open the newspaper. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to go to any classes. You don't have to go to seminars. You don't have to do any of this junk that people charge you 80 bucks an hour to do and everything else. You know what you need to do? Just, just open your Bibles and read what God has to say about it. God says a lot of stuff about a lot of things. And man, I'll tell you what, he points you in the right direction. How blessed or happy is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And in our society, that's the majority of people. Nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates on it both day and night. You know what? He's going to the book, man. That's what he's saying. He's going to the Bible and he's trying to find out what God desires of his life. And the words, a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path that shows him what he's doing is wrong, shows him the direction that God wants him to go. And the reason that we sin is because we don't want to go that direction and it's just rebellion in the heart of man. And he goes on, he says, you know what, if you do it, you'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. You won't go back and forth. You won't be swayed with public opinion. You won't be for one thing one day and against it the next day. The word of God stays the same. God is constant. He's the same yesterday, day, and forever. He's not going to change his laws based on society's demands. And in fact, if the majority ruled, then let me ask you, why was there ever a flood to begin with? Huh? Stop and think about it. Isn't that the truth? 
God said that the heart of man was continually evil, and God wanted to, he regretted the day that he made man. And there was a minority of people who were righteous in the sight of God, and God chose to save them through it because of God's righteousness and because not of their performance. So the Bible clearly teaches the majority of people were wrong, and God took care of the problem. Interesting. Sodom and Gomorrah. God, you know, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is still homosexuality. That hasn't changed. You know what? And God got down to five righteous people and everyone else was buying into what the program was, thinking everything was okay, all sexual behavior was okay. God said, no, it's not. He's got a very, very confined space as far as sex is concerned. Our society needs to know it. All sex outside of marriage is still a sin. Period. All sex outside heterosexual marriage is still a sin. And, and we've got to change that a little bit, make sure we all understand it. But that's the bullseye right there. Anything else is sin, and it falls short of God's standards. But that's what, he says, what will be like. will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, and it will yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. We've got a whole world of people who want to know how to be successful. You don't want to know how to be successful? Turn to the Bible and find out what God's, what God's desires are for your life. And then obey him. Don't, don't go to the left. Don't go to the right according to Joshua 1. But meditate on God's laws. Do it God's ways. And then you'll have much success, the Bible says. But you know what? The wicked aren't like that. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If we don't, if we don't do anything else, let's just grab this one and just believe what God has to say. He's established laws and standards. And the reason that we continue to sin is because we don't believe Him. But you know what? There's another point that he makes that maybe even goes a little deeper than that. And that is that we sin because we ignore the finished work of Christ. We ignore what Jesus did on the cross. Why do you keep struggling with sin in your life? Because you ignore, as a believer, you ignore what Jesus did on the cross. Look what it says. It says, But you know that He appeared, speaking of Jesus, so that He might take away our sins. And in him, there is no. Why did Jesus appear? First of all, there's two things. One is he appeared, which means that he existed before that he appeared. The Bible is very clear that Jesus existed, his pre existence, that he is the eternal God of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 says that Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Uh, John chapter 1, 1 through 12 says that Jesus was the one. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the eternal God. John 8.58, he said to, the, it said to the Pharisees, Before Abraham existed, I am. Jesus is the eternal God in human flesh who appeared or manifested himself, became visible to us, came to this earth in the form of a human being, a perfect man, perfect God. And you know why he did that? So that he might take away our sins. That's the whole purpose. Jesus said in Luke 19, he said, you know why? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. His whole purpose, God of the universe, eternal, the eternal God of all time, his whole purpose in coming to this earth was to free us from sin. You follow that? That's a wonderful thought. And the word take away has to do with, in the New Testament language, basically the prefix is arrow, aerodynamics, aeroplane. It means to take off and away. Okay, now stop and think about this for a minute. You know what Jesus did on the cross? He took your sins, he took my sins, past, present, and future, and he put them on a launching pad. And he said, if you just believe in me, your sin forever is on a launching pad that's going to take off, blast off, into space, 
and you'll never be held accountable for him again. Remember when he said, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us? He said, Man, can you believe that God loved me even when I was a sinner? That he loved me and Jesus died for me? Can you believe there's that kind of love in existence? That that's God's love for us? Now he's taking it a step further and saying, Man, you want to take a good hard look at something? You know what he says about your sin and my sin? He puts it on a launching pad. Three, two, one, blast off, and it is gone out of sight forever and ever. Amen. Why do we continue to sin? Because we ignore what Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross. Do you realize he freed you from sin? That sin no longer masters over you? That sin is no longer, you're not a slave to sin anymore? That means that the reason you keep struggling with what you struggle with is because, one, you, you, you don't obey the word of God, you don't submit to the authority of God, and two, is that you ignore what Jesus accomplished. Do you realize that? Do you realize every time you say, but I can't help lying? Do you realize what you're really saying if you've come to know Christ? You're saying that Jesus' death wasn't big enough to free me from that sin. See, if Jesus can't free you from the habit of lying, then how's he going to get you into heaven? You follow this? But I struggle with sexual temptations and actions in my life. Hey, man... If Jesus' death on the cross wasn't great enough to free you from that, then how's he going to get you to heaven? But I struggle with my temper. (laughs) Hey, your temper? Do you realize what Jesus did when he died for your sins? He freed you up from that. Sin no longer masters over you. Why do you continue to present your bodies to unrighteousness? That's what he says. See, you know what Jesus did on the cross? Maybe we just need sometimes... Let's close on this. I want to challenge you to think about something. The next time you struggle with that sin in your life that you continually struggle with, I don't know what it is. God knows what it is. And if you're you're one of His kids, His Spirit continually reminds you what it is. And there is torment in your life because of that. And there isn't anybody that I know that doesn't love God that is struggling with sin that wants to be free from that sin. Man, there is hell going on in your life. There is torment. It is agony. You lay in bed at night and you just, you just pray, God, please help me to stop do this. I don't want to do this anymore. And the guilt and the frustration that goes along with whatever it is that you're doing, you know what it is. Here's what I want you to do. The next time you struggle and you're tempted with that particular sin in your life, I want you to go to the Word of God. I want you to go to the Bible, and I want you to go to the back. You know, they call it a concordance in the back, and it has a list of all kind of topics. And if it's anger, just go look it up. And it'll give you all kind of different references that you can look at. I want you to just look it up, and then I want you to just go to the Bible and find what it says about anger. Find what it says about lying. Find what it says about cheating. Find what it says about sexual temptations and, and all the rest that goes along with it. Find what it says about all the things that you struggle with. And then you read it. And you study it. And you see what God has to say about it. And then you remember this one thing. Do you remember this? That Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12, says that Jesus endured the pain. You know what he went through to free you of that sin? You know when they called him a bastard? When they beat him? When they smacked him? When they punched him? When they blindfolded him? When they spit on him? When they crowned him with thorns? When he, when he agonized in the garden praying for you and I and, and beads of blood came through his skin. 
Do you know what he went through to free you and I from sin? And when they dragged him up to Calvary and when they nailed him on the cross and when they poked him in the side with the spear, when they did all that they did to him, it says he despised the shame. He endured that pain, then despised the shame of being mocked at, being, being put on a cross with, with, with people who deserve to die. As the thief said, we deserve to be here. And had the whole world march past him on that freeway and just look at him and laugh at him and make fun of him. Do you know what he went through to free you and I from that sin? That's what he went through. And you know why he did it? It says he endured that pain. He despised that shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him and that was knowing that his work on the cross was finished. And that if you and I believed him and trusted in him, that we would be perfect in the sight of God. Do you realize what he did? When you say, I can't stop lying, God, help us to understand what Jesus did to free us from it. We should leave here today and turn to the Word of God and submit to His authority and say, Lord, you know what? I believe that Jesus died for all my sin, past, present, and future, and I believe that sin no longer has power over me. And I just ask you to give me strength through the power of your Holy Spirit and His presence in my life to free me the next time I want to tell a little lie, but just to tell the truth. The next time I'm tempted sexually, to walk out of that environment and not fall. Lord, I know you can give me the strength because I'm trusting you with my eternity. You can free me from my sin today. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to take a look at a very complex situation from a, from a human perspective, but very simple in yours, and that is that we struggle with sin simply because we don't submit to your authority in our life. We don't believe what you have to say about sin. And we live in a society that tries to complicate it all the time, tries to make, the, make us believe that somehow or another the majority of the opinion is right and that we should live our lives accordingly. And yet we see example after example through Scripture where a majority opinion didn't do anything but lead to devastation and destruction. God, help us to be like the one who meditates on your law both day and night, that we'd be firmly planted, and that in all the things that we do we would prosper because we're being obedient to you. Help us to see things in great contrast to see things as, as this particular letter helps us to see them. That there are those who know you and those who don't. Those who love you and those who don't. Those who live according to your light, which is your word, and those who live in disobedience. Those who eagerly wait for Christ to come back and those who don't. And Father, help us to understand exactly what Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross. That he took our sin, past, present, and future, and he put them on a launching pad, and he just he blasted them off, and then eternal space, that those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ will never be held accountable again because of who Jesus is and what he did. And we just thank you, and we, we just marvel, as John did, at what, what great manner of love that you had for us. And yet, while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.